Our scripture this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm thankful for the interest in the series of sermons that we just concluded called My God. We looked at some of the false identities that we ascribe to God and how that gets us off track and how we not only view God, but how we live our lives in light of how we view God. And if you missed any of those messages or if you would like to revisit one of those or maybe share one with someone else, a coworker, a friend, family member, let me remind you, you can go online to our website, and the audio is there, but also the video is there. If you uh, can stand seeing this again, you can watch the video, or you can just listen to it. I appreciate Todd Frazier and others who are making that video um, available as we live stream this service and also then make those sermons available on our website. So those are archived there. So you can go back and visit those. We are starting a new sermon series this morning on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And hot off the press are our new bookmarks for this sermon series. Those are out in the lobby. Let me just remind you the purpose of these bookmarks. On one side, you have the topics and the text from a sermon series, like this one. And on the other side, you have the very simple plan of Discovery Bible Study. And the idea is that you would take one of these bookmarks, it doesn't have to be this one, we have several out there in the lobby now, six or seven of these available. And that you would sit down with maybe a couple of other people and open up your Bible together and share in God's word and pray together and encourage each other and grow as disciples in Christ. And if you haven't had the opportunity to do that yet, let me just encourage you to take this one step. And here's the step. Grab one of these bookmarks. It can be this one. It can be one of the others. Take it with you. And in your own personal Bible study time, use this Bible study to guide your thoughts. And actually just go through and ask yourselves these questions. You might even want to journal your answers or your prayer time. And just get familiar with this format. And then maybe after a while, you will feel very comfortable to say, hey, you know, maybe I should invite someone to join me. Maybe someone in your family, maybe someone you work with, maybe someone in one of your Bible classes here, and just invite them to join you and just do what you've been doing 
but do that with one or two other people. Let me just encourage you to pick one of those up before you leave this morning. Those are also available on the website as well. Something else I want to tell you about that's very important before we launch into the sermon, and that is that our our shepherds here truly care about this congregation. They really do care about you, and they want the best for you. Spiritually, they want the best for you, but in other ways as well. And one of their highest values, one of the things that they value more than anything else, is praying with and for you. They love to pray for you, and they love to pray with you when that is available to them. And so to facilitate praying with and for you, we're going to do something a little bit different. At the end of this sermon and the sermons in the foreseeable future, during the invitation, when we all stand and have that song, you may see one or two elders and their wives, one or two of our shepherds and their wives, get up and walk actually up here and through these doors. They are going to go to the parlor, which is the room right behind us here, right behind me. They're going to go to the parlor and they are going to be available to pray with you for those few minutes. And so during the invitation, yes, you are more than welcome to still come down to the front. If you're ready to be baptized and put Christ on and begin a life honoring Christ, we would love to celebrate that with you and help you with that. Or if you want this church family to pray over you and support you and you want to do that in a public way, please, please come forward and make that known. But sometimes it's just nice to have a more private setting, isn't it? A little more personal, a little more intimate. And so a couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. And during that invitation song, you you don't have to come up here. You can just make your way out one of the back doors, side doors, and make your way around to the parlor. And they will receive you there, and they will be happy to pray with you there. They're going to pray in there either way. And so you might want to join them, and they would be happy to pray for you. I am so appreciative of our shepherds and their prayerful spirit and their desire to lift up this congregation in prayer. All right, let's get into the sermon. Matthew chapter 5. Turn over there in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Matthew 5. You know, I think you'll find this to be true. I, I have found this to be true in our, in our lives, in my life. We often try external solutions and external uh, responses to answer internal issues and internal problems. We, we often try something on the outside, change something on the outside to fix something on the inside. Now, there are some areas that we just absolutely wouldn't do this with. If your car has an engine problem, then you know that getting a new paint job on your car is not going to make your car run any better. It may make it look better, but it's not going to run better. But for some reason, so often when we have an issue or a problem in our life, maybe in our marriage, in a relationship, we try to address it through the externals, through what is visible, through what other people can see. And so often the real issue, the real struggle, the real problem is internal. It's a matter of the heart or it's something behind the scenes or below the surface. And so often we never really get to the source of the problem. We never really address the real issue because we spend all of our time and energy changing things on the outside. A few weeks ago, we noticed something in our bathroom that was very odd. Just outside the base of our freestanding tub was this little line of dirt. 
And we thought, what in the world could that be? Is that ants? Did an earthquake shake things up and make dirt come out of the bottom of the bathtub? I don't remember a dust storm blowing through the, the house, but I guess it could have in Oklahoma. And so we put our detective skills to work and we're trying to find out what is causing this little line of dirt at the base of our tub. No, if you see dirt inside your tub, you think, okay, that's, that's where dirt should probably be. That's what a tub is for, right? But this is on the outside. And so we quickly realized that in our backyard, especially up near the house, especially where our bathroom was, there were these mounds of dirt. And so we concluded that there was some kind of critter somehow under the tub there was access to the dirt somehow and then he was kind of digging around and maybe flinging some of that dirt and it was sort of hitting the bottom side of the tub and sort of spreading out a little bit and that's what we could see we had a trusted friend come over and he said that is a gopher he looked at those mounds in the backyard he said yep you got gophers like okay we have gophers quick quick easy solution right get rid of the gopher get rid of the gopher no more dirt at the bottom of the bathtub inside the bathroom and so I don't know if you know but there are lots of theories lots of ways to try to get rid of gophers I am very educated now in how to get rid of gophers I love Google and so operation gopher be gone began not to be confused with operation (laughs) whack-a-mole We had to get rid of this gopher. And so we tried several different things. We treated the yard around the bathroom, around the house. We put these stakes in the yard that send off this vibrating pulse and sound that's supposed to make the gophers go away to the neighbors, I guess, you know. What was my problem now becomes your problem? I don't know. We put those in the ground. We put poison pellets in the ground. We tried several different things. In the meanwhile, Carrie Ann took a flat stick and was trying to dig out some of this dirt. And she kept digging and digging, and more and more dirt began to show up under our tub. Look at that. Like, this is a problem. So we clean up the dirt, and we think, okay, we are going to get rid of this gopher outside. We're going to get him. We're either going to send him on his way or send him to gopher heaven. We're going to get rid of this gopher. But you know what happened? dirt continued to show up around the base of our bathtub and so we finally realized that we're going to have to look under the tub we're going to have to get to the source of the problem so that's what we did we pulled the drain out we got some help and we moved the tub up and what we discovered was this this huge pile of dirt you see there was about a foot a square foot hole in the foundation directly to the ground, the dirt. And this guy had gotten in there and just made a mess of things. This is another picture to give you a different perspective on how much dirt was there. (laughs) Makes you want to take a bath, doesn't it? And so we cleaned up all the dirt and we poured cement in there, we put concrete in there and sealed that hole, put the bathtub back, and no longer did we have dirt under our bathtub. Now, getting rid of the gopher has been an ongoing saga, but we don't have dirt in our bathroom anymore. We tried to fix the problem with external, outside solutions. 
right? We tried to use one of those techniques to get rid of the gopher, but ultimately and finally, we had to get below the surface. We had to get to the source. We had to see what was going on under the bathtub to really identify and to fix the problem. Now, when Jesus presented the Sermon on the Mount, I can assure you he was not thinking of bathtubs and gophers. And yet this serves as a very good metaphor for what Jesus is doing in this sermon. And so in this famous sermon that covers three chapters in the gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus talks about what it means to be a true follower of Christ. And he says discipleship is born in one's heart, inside a person, below the surface. It takes root in the heart. And so what we will see time and time again as we go through this teaching of Jesus is that true righteousness, true righteousness comes from the inside out. That external solutions, that changing a few things that people can see, that won't do it. That it must be born inside us, in our hearts. And then it takes root and impacts how we live and what we do and certainly what people see but it's not for people to see and look at us and praise us and Jesus will address that as well as someone has said in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus gets to the heart of the problem the problem of the heart and so Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience and he's going to talk about the law of Moses the law that they know very well it's the code by which they lived their lives And Jesus is going to offer a fresh perspective on the laws and the commands that they know. And when Jesus does this, it's important for us to realize that he's not contradicting the law. He's not countering the law. He's not one-upping the law. He's not changing the law. He's not upgrading it and offering Law of Moses 2.0. In fact, what Jesus says early on in this sermon from verse 17 is... Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I'm not separate from what God was doing in the Old Testament, Jesus says. In fact, he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus has come to fulfill the law. And so as Jesus stands on the mountain to speak on behalf of God, he is portrayed as the new Moses. And just as Moses stood on that mountain and spoke to the people on behalf of God and shared the law, Jesus stands on the mountain and speaks on behalf of God and shares the heart of the law. But he doesn't just share it with his words and his teachings. Remember, he came to fulfill the law. He embodies what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, to reflect the heart of God. And so Jesus is going to talk about how we live. And obedience is extremely important. In this sermon, it's extremely important. Because at the end of this sermon, in chapter 7, do you remember what Jesus says? If you're familiar with this at all, you know, because our kids know, because they sing the song. Jesus says, whoever hears my words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when that storm came and that rain came, his house stood firm. But the person who hears my words, Jesus says, and does not put them into practice is like that foolish guy 
who built his house on the sand. And when the storms came, all of our kids know what happened to his house. It went smack, right? So obedience is important. It's important to Jesus. But this, this is the key. Obedience to God does not come from outward behavior modification. If I can just get you to do something different. It comes from inward heart transformation. You see, Jesus isn't just trying to change what they do. He's trying to help them see who they are. Who they are in light of God's kingdom being revealed in his own life. And so Jesus aims at the heart. I have a friend who preaches, and his dad was also a preacher. And his dad would always say to the congregation, If I stepped on your toes this morning, I'm sorry. I was aiming for your heart. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's not necessarily trying to step on the toes of his listeners. He's trying to aim right at their heart. And so much of what he says is challenging. It's jarring. It's surprising. It's shocking. Including one of his opening statements in verse 20. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at that scripture. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of your preachers, your religious leaders, then you're not going to be a part of what God is doing in this world. You're not going to be a part of his kingdom. Now keep in mind, what Jesus is saying in this sermon, the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. What that means is the kingdom of heaven is being revealed. The kingdom of heaven is coming near. How is it coming near? In the teachings and in the life of Jesus, the kingdom of God was being revealed. And so when Jesus says, those who are part of God's kingdom have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you can imagine the reaction from his listeners. Wait a second, Jesus. We're supposed to be more righteous than our Pharisees? Jesus, it doesn't get any more righteous than that. They're the most righteous guys we know. When it comes to keeping the law, they dot every I, they cross every T. How can we be more righteous than them? Certainly, how can we exceed their righteousness? But like Jesus does so often, and like how he lived his own life, he turns conventional wisdom on its head. You see, those Pharisees appear to be righteous because they are doing things that look right. And everyone is watching them do these things. But it's almost like Jesus is saying, have you lifted up the tub? <laughs> have you looked below the surface? Have you seen the heart of these people? Because if you look below the surface, you're going to see a lot of dirt. Their hearts are far from me. You see, righteousness takes root in the heart. But what is righteousness? What are we talking about? It's so important that we're all sort of on the same page as we listen to Jesus's words saying your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. One of his opening statements is 
Blessed or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, Jesus, what do you mean? Well, for the Pharisees, righteousness meant you look the part. You look right. You appear right. Now, later in Paul's writings, he will use that word righteousness to talk about what God declares us to be in Christ. It's our condition, our spiritual condition. We are made right by God through Christ. For Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about righteousness, what he's saying is we live our lives in ways that represent the values of the kingdom of God, not the values of the world. And that must start with what's on the inside from the inside out. It's not about looking right. It's about allowing God to transform us in the right ways so that our hearts and consequently our lives represent the kingdom of God. And so Jesus will proceed to show us what that means, what that looks like. He gives us examples of what true righteousness looks like. It's more than just not murdering someone. It's getting a handle on your anger. You see, that's a heart issue. It's more than not committing adultery. It's controlling lust. Again, a heart issue. It's more than not just getting revenge on someone. It's extending mercy to that person. These things are generated from the inside out. And so Jesus wants to begin with a picture of what that kind of life looks like. And so he starts with what we call the Beatitudes. Beatitudes is a word from Latin that means happy or good favor or good fortune. But this isn't isn't a, a temporary or a circumstantial kind of happiness. This is a deep abiding joy that comes as a consequence of living a life aligned with God's values. And again, we see the contrast with the Pharisees who leverage their position and their power to intimidate other people and to make themselves look better. And Jesus offers a a counter vision, a vision of what it means to live life that is so foreign and so different from the Pharisees. Again, the very people they think are righteous. Jesus says, no, let me show you what true righteousness is. Let me show you the people who are truly happy. Who truly find joy. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Wait, you can be poor and be happy? You can realize that you are spiritually bankrupt without God and you can be happy? Yeah. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, true righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, those who are insulted for the name of Christ. Now these beatitudes have been dissected and deconstructed and analyzed and and you can do that and there's value in that. There's all different interpretive lenses through which to view these beatitudes. Some say you look at the first four and those have to do with our vertical relationship with God. You look at the next five, and those have to do with our horizontal relationship with other people. Other scholars have said the best way to look at the Beatitudes is a progression, almost like a ladder. And each Beatitude is a rung on that ladder. And you start by recognizing that you are poor in spirit, that you have nothing on your own. But then you move closer toward God, closer in your maturity in Christ, 
Ultimately, to you reach the top and your faith is so strong that you are being persecuted and insulted by the world around you. And I think there's value in look at, looking at it that way. Others have said you can divide it into threes, triads of beatitudes. The first one's about humility, the next group about justice, and the final three about peace. However you choose to look at and analyze and interpret the Beatitudes, one thing is clear. They are counterintuitive. They are countercultural. They are not normal. They don't seem natural. They are certainly not ordinary. You see, Jesus reveals an extraordinary way to live life, a life that is a part of the kingdom of God. And that's why we're calling this series Extraordinary. It's not that we are extraordinary. We are just ordinary. In fact, the Bible talks a lot about how God uses the ordinary. But he calls us and invites us as a part of his kingdom to live life different than the world, to live life not ordinary, but extraordinary. And that begins on the inside. And one extraordinary truth that Jesus shares, even in these Beatitudes, is that genuine joy, genuine happiness or blessing comes as a byproduct of a greater pursuit, the pursuit of righteousness. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what do you hunger and thirst for? Some of you are hungry and thirsty right now. You're like, would you be quiet and we can take care of our hunger and thirst? But in life, what do you hunger and thirst for? Is it fame, recognition, money, possessions, power, influence? There are a lot of things that we invest our time and energy into, right? We pursue things like happiness. And Jesus says, as long as you are pursuing happiness, you're not going to find it. We've been reminded of that even this past week as people in the news who we think seemingly have everything, yet something is wrong. And there's no happiness there. You see, it's not until you stop pursuing happiness that you might actually find happiness. Jesus says you pursue something worthwhile, righteousness, true righteousness. And happiness, joy, blessing will come with that. And why does he want us to live this kind of life? I believe he wants to bless us. But more than that, he knows and reminds us that we live in a world that is watching. And we have an opportunity to be a witness to this world. And so in this sermon, Jesus says right up front, you are the salt of the earth. What he means is you have an influence on the world around you. And then he continues with another metaphor that we're very familiar with. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says, you were made to live life a certain way, an extraordinary way that's different from the world. 
And when people in the world see you living that life, they will be drawn to you. But more than that, they will be drawn to God through you. You are salt. You are light. In this sermon, Jesus is not just trying to change behavior. He's not just saying, hey, y'all need to act differently. He's saying this is the nature of the kingdom of God. But he's not just saying that. He will live it out in front of them. Show them what it looks like. He will be an object lesson for the Sermon on the Mount. And so just as his listeners, his disciples, the crowd gathered around him on the mountain to learn about life in the kingdom, we approach Jesus. We gather around him as students wanting to know, wanting to learn about this countercultural, counterintuitive, extraordinary way to live life. Life in the kingdom of God. Lived in a way that begins inside, below the surface, at the heart. True righteousness is born in the heart. And so as we conclude this morning, I have one simple question for you. And the question is this, how is your heart? What is the condition of your heart right now? Is your heart burdened with bitterness? Are you angry? Maybe angry at God, angry at someone else, angry at the church. And you just carry around in your heart this this burden of, of bitterness and anger. Or is your heart darkened by sin or addiction? You can't seem to overcome it. Or maybe your heart is overrun with pride or selfishness or cynicism or doubt. What is the condition of your heart? Are you, like the Pharisees, trying to get right with God by doing enough, by doing more, by showing everyone around you that you are a Christian? Let God speak to your heart. Let God push on your heart a little bit. Maybe he's putting something on your heart even this morning. We're going to sing this invitation song in just a moment. And again, I invite you to come forward if you want prayers or if you're ready to give your life to Christ to be baptized. But also, if you need more of a a private setting and you just want to pray with one or two of our shepherds and their wives, then, then you can make your way to the parlor, which is right behind me. We want to be here for you. To celebrate, if it's time to celebrate, certainly to mourn if it's time to mourn, and always to support and to lift you up in prayer. If we can help you in some way, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. <laughs>